we had a you know a spot tracker with us, and I was figuratively eyeing that emergency button the entire the entire night, like just in my head, like what have I done? What have I done to AJ? What have I gotten us into? Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm usually the host, Mason Gravely, but today we're doing a throwback. Uh, Kurt was hosting this one back in 2018, talking about uh, hiking, snowshoeing, and all that in Sweden on Kungsleden Trail. It's going to be awesome, and then we're going to talk about urban repelling, so two very different worlds coming together uh, with Todd here. So hope you enjoy. Happy Thanksgiving. Hope you're enjoying it with family or, or with folks you, you enjoy being around. Uh, if not, use the podcast as an escape. That's what I do with it um, <laughs> in a good way. Uh, but anyway, let's go ahead and jump in. Today's show is about several things. We're going to talk about using repelling off of high-rise buildings for charity events. Cool idea. We're also going to talk about huge winter Arctic trips in Sweden. And we're going to talk about these things with Todd Medeiros. Todd, welcome to the program. Uh, Thanks for having me, Kurt. Pleasure to be here. Well, Todd, I've been looking over the little bit of uh, information you gave me about these things, and it sounds really exciting, but I don't know much, and that's the way I like it. So I can ask the questions. You can fill in the details. But you're in Brooklyn now, right? Uh, yep. I, uh, most of the time I work uh, remotely from Brooklyn when I'm not working abroad. Cool. And so I, I have to ask how you got involved in rappelling and climbing and things like that from Brooklyn. How, what's that story? Oh, I mean, it's some of the best accidents, really, of my life. Um, I just mean, quirks of happenstance, not actual accidents. Um, but uh, with, uh, with climbing, uh, really, uh, oddly enough, I grew up in New Paltz, New York, which is, you know, home of the gunks, which is a trad climbing uh, kind of mecca, and didn't climb. <laughs> you know, growing up as a youth, my parents didn't climb. Uh, they were actually uh, like marathon runner types, uh, like to do the fun runs and the marathons. And the blizzard of 96 came and we, uh, they had enough of uh, shoveling snow. I remember we lifted up our garage door and it was still a wall of white once the garage door went up. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. So after that, they moved us down to a vacation home in Florida, and like they, they're like, we'll figure it out from there. <laughs> so uh, I grew up my uh, formative uh, teen years in Florida and moved back to New York when I was 21. Um, shortly thereafter, uh, I was dating a girl, and she kept suggesting we go to this Brooklyn Boulders uh, rock gym. You know, oh, she'd seen something. This was like 2009 that this gym had opened up and I was like, I actually resisted a lot. I was like, ah, nah, you know, like, you know, just coming up with excuses why we could, or something else to do for that day. And one day I just, I didn't have any more excuses. And we went to the rock gym and, uh, I became a gym rat, <laughs> you know, oh, and, uh, the gym climbing vastly outlasted the relationship, uh, <laughs> funny enough. So, uh, she kind of, you know, I was like, that was a great experience, but you know, not my thing. And I was kind of like, ah, right, you know, something to this. And we, we had bought a three pack, uh, sort of lesson and three days of climbing with them. And after the three days I bought a, my first annual membership and pretty much have been going to that gym as my home gym ever since. Um, at the same time, I became a volunteer firefighter out in Long Island and the company I work for. Uh, Over the Edge uh, Global um, is, which is a company that does uh, urban repelling events for nonprofits all around the country, uh, in Canada, UK, and we're debuting in New Zealand. Um, they use local ropes volunteers in addition to their staff when they set up in a city. So, I, I guess first I should say our repel. If you want to think about the event, it's kind of like a 5K, like. People use a 5K to do a fundraiser. It's a 
known, tested, tried and true concept, and everyone's familiar with that. So our 5K is usually like a two to 300 foot walk backwards off a building. And nice. we're the company that works on behalf of the nonprofit or the charity partner, the person who's seeking to raise funds to put that on for them from the technical side. So if you think about it like a 5K, we'd be bringing the starting blocks and the chip timers and you know uh, all of that stuff. So instead, we come in with about you know 1,600 pounds of rope and gear and carabiners, and we set up a rope access style rappel, which is uh, industrial trade uh, rope access where you use rope to access your work site. So you might be an electrician changing one of those big Bank of America signs on the side of a building, or you might be working on a wind turbine or you know out on an oil platform, but you're using rope to access that site. So we take that type of industrial rappel and package it into an event that um, regular people off the street who've never touched a carabiner or tied a knot in their lives can solicit funds, uh, you know, fundraise from their friends and family in their local community for whatever the cause is. And if they raise the minimum, they get the chance to rappel off a high-rise building in their hometown. So when we do this event... Uh, We use local volunteers from all over the country, and we usually seek them out from places where people are familiar with rope work, like climbing gyms or fire departments, police departments, SWAT teams, outdoor clubs. You know, we uh, cold call them or send out emails and ask them to send some volunteers our way. So I'm a volunteer firefighter. This must have been like 2013. And someone called a fire department who called another fire department who called another fire department who called my lieutenant and said, Hey, would you guys send some guys to an event as a standby? And so standby to us means you sit around, eat some junk food and you really don't do anything unless someone gets in trouble. (laughs) Right. It's usually a, a slow day, just hanging out and, uh, you don't usually have to do anything. And that's a good thing, right? Because that means everyone's having a safe, fun time. So I get there on site, and they start asking me to do things. Um, I'm a helpful guy. So I was like, okay, yeah, sure, I'll move that rope bag, or I'll rig that there, and, you know, whatever. And, you know, we're going through all this process, and then they're like, okay, so tomorrow the event starts. I'm like, it's the second day of this thing? (laughs) And, uh, you know, I came back the second day and just really loved the experience of uh, helping people including a um, uh, very, uh, I forget what his disability was, but there was a young man with uh, a a wheelchair bound, uh, cerebral palsy, that's what it was. Yeah. And this young man went over in his wheelchair and that was very inspirational. It was a very unique experience for me. And Mm. after that, I drew a four hour circle around my house on the map and was like, all right, anytime over the edge comes in this circle here, I'm going to go volunteer at one of their events. And after a while, they, I guess they just figured they had to offer me a job because I was kind of a <laughs> Northeast groupie. Um, so I started with them in like 2014 just by accident. One day someone asked me to do a standby and it turned out to be this awesome volunteer experience that was profoundly rewarding to me. And, you know, here I am uh, going on five years now with them. That's a cool story, Todd. I like I like hearing how lives unfold like that. You know, it starts with the girlfriend that didn't work out and who didn't even care for climbing that led to the membership, that led to the, the fire department, which led to this volunteer opportunity, which led to a, a lifestyle that you now have and enjoy. Yeah, and it, it, it's just very – I look back on it a lot, and I'm like, this is really strange because, you know, there were a lot of things where it was like, Everyone else in my fire department who was going to go to this standby thing couldn't make it. And I ended up just going by myself. And I was like, "Ah, do I still want to go? You know, it's like, (laughs) you know, I'm not going to know anyone. And it was like, because for me, that's sort of like, you know, outside my comfort zone, you know. But uh, I just kind of like sucked it up and was like, just do it. And just just do it, you know. (laughs) And it, it led to something really awesome for me. So, You know, they say that getting outside of the comfort zone is usually where we find growth, excitement, new opportunities. It's what opens the doors. 
I, and that's what adventure is about too. It's about challenging ourselves and helping other people challenge themselves to learn new things about, you know, ourselves and each other. And uh, I think it's so cool that it was a little out of your comfort zone, but it led to this whole lifestyle. Yeah, uh, that's what I try and tell people, you know, when they're like contemplating something that seems out of their comfort zone. I'm like, trust me, you know, just do it. Because it also came at a time in my life where I was like, kind of like, what is my next step? Like, what am I going to do? I mean, I didn't right. really have any problems, but I didn't feel like I was, you know, living with a purpose. You know, so like I, I didn't, it wasn't like I had money problems or any problems with, you know, really anything. It was kind of like, I'm doing all the things that they tell you you're supposed to do, but it just doesn't, doesn't make you feel warm and fuzzy yet. And, you know, just by like kind of saying yes to those experiences, <laughs> even though I was resistant to going climbing in the gym in the beginning, <laughs> you know, ultimately, uh, you know, gave me a lot of uh, fulfillment. So I got to kind of unpackage what it's like to help people step off a 400, 500, 600 foot tall building, right? I mean, this is craziness. And to, to step over the edge and start down the line, now that's major challenge for most people. I mean, the fear of heights is not something that some people have and some people don't. Everybody has it. It's an innate quality we're all born with, just some people to a greater degree, I think. But Absolutely. regardless, that's a huge challenge for people, especially when they've not done anything like that. So how do you encourage people to do that first step off the building? So that, that is the hardest part for people, um, you know, and coming up on that roof is sort of the ultimate equalizer. You see all different kinds of personality types uh, come through the event, you know, and it starts down in on the ground in what's called staging, where they get their personal gear, their harness, their descenders, their backup device, all of that stuff. And you'll see a lot of different characters. You know, you'll see the the guy who's puffing out his chest and you know being like, oh, this is no big deal. I ziplined in Costa Rica. You'll see the guy, you know, the person who's real quiet. You'll see the person who's nervous throughout the whole experience and they're, you know, they're questioning everything and they're like, you know, I don't know, I'm going to be able to do this the whole time. And then when you get to the roof, pretty much everyone's silent. Everyone is equal. Everyone's <laughs> on the same plane. I mean, I have had, you know, uh, people uh, coming out of recovery and, you know, having raised the money for a recovery type of nonprofit and this was like their, you know, the biggest, you know, this was the second biggest challenge for them, you know, obviously their recovery being the first. And I've had, you know, billionaire CEOs, you know, coming up on the roof, mayors, politicians, uh, lawyers, doctors, every walk of life you can imagine. And when you get to the roof, everyone's the same person. And we try and run the event as in inclusively as we possibly can, uh, you know. We've had people in wheelchairs. We've had people with all varieties of disabilities. Um, you know, our oldest person was 97 years old, you know. Uh, so once you get to the roof, whatever you are down on the street is totally gone. And you're that same person facing the same challenge as everybody else. And basically, it's challenge by choice. You know, we hook you, you go through a training, you get familiarized with the equipment, and our technicians are with you right there on the edge to refresh that knowledge that we just gave you. Because for most people, the brain kind of short circuits once they're standing on the edge and their heels are exactly. off a building. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> but really, you know, you're connected to two ropes over 7,800 pounds that hold over 7,800 pounds roughly, you know, each, and you're connected to two of them. So as technicians, we feel a lot safer about you uh, on our edge than, you know, we do with you walking across a roof, you know, where there's HVAC pipes and wire chases and things you could trip on. Right, <laughs> so once you're exactly. on the rope as technicians, I'm like, all right, this guy's safe now. It's just a matter of talking him over. And that's where we kind of get that reverse uh, negotiator thing. So we're trying to talk you into going over the side, <laughs> you know, as the, you know, so uh, I like to give people, um, only what they need, you know, because part of it is a conversation with yourself and talking yourself through it and that process for you. Some people like a lot of interaction. Some people just want to go 
And, you know, I, it, it's kind of a skill that you start to develop is you can tell how much of assistance is this person's going to need. Um, you know, I've spoken almost nothing to people beyond doing my safety check and saying, all right, all your equipment's good. You're ready to go. And they go. And I have literally sung with people on the edge of the roof because that's what they needed. Right. They're like, we need to sing a song. And I'm like, all right, let's sing a song. And I've, <laughs> you know, I've talked to them on their radio pretty much the entire way to the ground. And we've had people come up back to the roof after they've landed uh, to give us hugs, like in tears, because they really accomplished something, you know, that was big for them. I mentioned before we hit record that I taught people to repel years ago and, and how rewarding I found it to be. We used to grab um, kids that were, they were in a program that was for juvenile delinquents who had been assigned to the program by a judge so that they could learn some life skills and, and maybe, you know, change their walk a little bit. We used to take those people out and teach them to repel. And the toughest, you know, the toughest bad to the bone guy from the hood he, he Once he gets to the top of the cliff, no, it's all equal, just like you said. And when they get to the bottom, that was my favorite part, is you see the real person, perhaps for the first time ever, you see the real person when they touch the ground, you know? They're giving hugs, yeah. They're sometimes they're crying, they're like, I can't believe this. It's just so inspirational for me. I know it has to be for you, too. Uh, absolutely. I mean, without a doubt, I... You know, just some of the, you know, just all some of the causes that we get to work with around the country is, you know, really inspirational as well. Uh, but seeing people come out of their comfort zone and, you know, I had a, I think it was in Buffalo, New York, where uh, we were there with Special Olympics and we had a father and a son who had a Down syndrome, you know, going over the edge of a building. And there we have two repelling stations set up side by side. And we get them both over the edge, so they're, they're sitting there, pressed out against the building, you know, getting ready to repel. And we're like, okay, you can go. And the kid just takes off, and he's like, come on, Dad, you're a chicken. And, you know, <laughs> he just sails off. And the dad's like, are you kidding me? It's like, now I've got to do this, too. I'm committed now for sure. Right. <laughs> you know, my, my son just tore off down the building, and, you know, and it was really like, you know, just a great uh, moment, you know. Oh, yeah. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Well, I'm going to ask something that might be a challenge for you. Maybe not. But do you re remember your first repel? Uh, Yeah. Absolutely. What did it feel like when you were on the brink right there? Uh, I tell you the truth, because uh, it, it just came up in my Facebook memories or, something. <laughs> you know, um, it was, uh, I, I forget the exact year. It was when I just joined the fire department. I was a probie in the fire department and we were doing a, a sort of a high angle uh, rescue training uh, in a, a pumping station. So <laughs> we were actually going three stories below ground. And I was sitting on the edge of, a, of a, a graded walking deck and they, you know, they pull up a section of the grate and we were rappelling down through there. And, you know, I was really putting on the brave face for everyone because, you, you know, you're going to get harangued pretty hard if, uh, you know, you sort of, you know, show some fear there. The rest of the guys are going to give it to you pretty hard and mess with you quite a bit. So and this was just on a, you know, a, a rescue eight uh, plate in there. You know, you, they tell you, okay, whatever you do, don't take your right hand off the rope there. And you're in this big, thick leather glove. And you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, totally. And you're just kind of like, you know, looking down at the bottom. And you're like, <laughs> you know, and then uh, as I was about to go, one of the other guys is like, oh, is this your first time? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh, well, let me put this thing. And, you know, what he actually did was tie a Prusik, like, auto block on, you know, below my descender, which at the time I'm like, oh, no what was, you know, what's going on here that I needed this extra piece of equipment that no one else is using. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a little nerve wracking for, for that reason. But I'd say the circumstances, uh, uh, kind of helped because I couldn't, uh, be nervous. Um, because, you know, I kind of had to put on that brave face, but yeah. I, I will say working with over the edge, I kind of had my first repelling experience again, 
um, I think it was like the second or third time I had volunteered with them. And as a volunteer, you get to do the rappel. And I was rappelling down the building and I was just kind of like, this is really weird. I was in the middle of the building and I'm like, why am I doing this? Why am I here? Because it was one of the first times I've ever been rappelling for no reason. Right? And climbing, you, re you rappel or get lowered down to get off the climb. Or you know to get off the top of the mountain, and firefighting, you're always getting, you're always repelling to pick someone out of a window, or you know do something else related to rescue. But I'm just in the middle of it. I think it was maybe in Philadelphia or something, like two, three hundred foot building, and I'm just like, this is weird. <laughs> There's no reason for me to be up here at all. And it's I just like, that why well, jump out of a perfectly good airplane moment. Exactly. You know, so I, I learned, you know, if you kind of get into that freak out mindset, then uh, it's good to give yourself a task. So one of the things I tell people to do now is to count windows or window panes, you know, as they go down. Or I'll say to someone, can you check all the window sills for me on the way down? I want to make sure that there's like, you know, no debris or anything. There you know, you go. helps people out. That's so cool. Yeah, it's a funny thing. And I'm going to say for People that have never repelled, they're listening right now, and they're thinking, well, I, I kind of get the idea. You know, you're going off a big building. Some people are saying, oh, I'm down with that. I want to do it. That sounds so cool. Other people are like, no, I don't see any point in that. You know, why would I do something like that? And I think that until you've experienced it, you don't really know what it's going to be like. And I say it that way because people that think it's going to be no big deal are often surprised. And other people who, who think that they shouldn't be up on that rooftop for any reason find out that they actually are really cool with it. Yeah. And most of the people we get are totally new to the concept, you know. Or we get some guys who they were, they were in the military, so they repelled off a 25-foot challenge wall, you know, with a right. carabiner and a drill sergeant screaming at them. And they're like, this is like, it's so much more intense of a setup, but it's so much more like thought going behind it. So it's a little more difficult uh, for them in that way. But I mean, just to be part of an organization that's helped nonprofits raise $70 million in, you know, less than 10 years is, you know, just profoundly rewarding. And, you know, all the good that those organizations then turn around and do with that money. And some of it even in the outdoor space, like Outward Bound and Ripple Effect and things of that nature. So it's nice when I can, you know, be helping a great cause that's also helping a cause that's near and dear to my heart. <laughs> right on. So give us the name of the company again. Yeah, it's uh, Over the Edge Global. And if people want more information, what's the website? Yeah, they can go to overtheedgeglobal.com. And, you know, there's a lot of information on there about, uh, you know, there's three ways to be involved. One is, you know, to uh, participate in an event. So you could go on there and, you know, put in your state and look up for an event that's coming near you and, you know, sign up to be a fundraiser for that cause. Or you can uh, volunteer like I did and help our tech team put on the event in your local city. Or if you happen to have a nonprofit and are interested in bringing over the edge to your town, there's also ways to uh, check to see if the license is available in your area and start that whole process. Talk to someone who can set you up in the sales side of that thing. Right on. Well, I also have to hear about this trip you just got back from Sweden in the Arctic. I'm going to let you describe it. I, I read through the wonderful write-up that you sent me about it. But there's so much there. I don't want to tell the story. I want you to tell the story. So what was this all about, man? So this was kind of like um, <laughs> uh, my big, long, hairy project uh, that uh, started kind of, I think, around September of last year. Yeah, September of 2017. In August, we had gotten back from a sort of cross-continental driving climbing tour of Europe where we started in uh, Copenhagen and drove clear across to Croatia and then stopped at a bunch of climbing spots on the way back up. So after that, it was kind of like, well, what's the next thing to do? You know, what, are, what, what am I going to do? And I was just kind of, you know, thinking of things, but not really getting involved uh, in the process of 
ferreting out what would be the next adventure. And I found an article on Facebook about a guy who had skied the northern section of the King's Trail in the wintertime uh, in Arctic Sweden. So there's a massive, uh, I think it was like four to 600 kilometer trail in northern Sweden called the King's Trail or Kunslegen. And it starts in a town called Abisko, population 85. <laughs> wow. Uh, and you, yeah, right? But you can take a train to it, which is what's so great. And uh, the most popular stretch of this is the northern section, which goes from Abisko to Nikolupta. And um, he, I read this article about this chap who did it um, on skis uh, in about six days. So I was like, all right. You know, I don't ski, but I own some snowshoes and I'm like, and I think, you know, I, we could probably do it in 10 days on snowshoes. And, you know, there are huts along the way that you can arrange to stay in. They don't have electricity or anything like that, but, you know, they have a, a fire pit and outhouses and that kind of stuff. And I was like, and I, and I was like, I've got this winter tent or this four season tent that I haven't used in the winter time yet. I was like, so we can do it without staying in the huts. And it's just kind of like started ratcheting up all of these different things, like making this challenge grow. And then I sort of forwarded the article onto my girlfriend, AJ, who lives in Sweden. And I was like, we can do this thing. And I was like, and we can do it in the winter time and we'll do it on snowshoes instead of skis. And we'll stay outdoors the entire time. I was like, you've always wanted to see the Northern Lights. So this is an excuse to see the Northern Lights and do this trip. And I was like, and on the way, we can try and climb the tallest mountain in Sweden. So <laughs> Wow, it just grew and grew and grew. Yeah. Yeah, uh, just uh, a little bit out of, you know, I was kind of just like, I can, I can add a little bit more. I could add a little bit more, you know, and just kind of, you know, find that outside edge. And But it's so easy to... to to be in that mindset six, nine months before, you know, actually having to start walking. Right. So yeah, that, it all started back in September when I read that article and then we kind of like worked up towards it, you know, secured all the rest of the gear we need slowly over time. Uh, you know, did a lot of climbing trips, uh, you know, to prepare, uh, trained with a 50 pound weight vest, you know, ran my apartment stairs, you know, in the morning, that sort of thing, just trying to like build up to like what this would be. Um, because it is, you know, 200 kilometers above the Arctic Circle. And you do need to, you know, have some specialized skills and planning. So, for instance, if you do this much earlier than we left on. Uh, our, I should say I left New York on the 15th of March and we got to the trail at the 18th of March. And if we'd gone into February uh, or earlier, you kind of have to plan this around the uh, moon cycle because the sun doesn't rise. Nice. You know? Yeah. So originally I, 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 that was one place where I pulled back a little bit and I was like, yeah, we could do this like, Right around, like, you know, the end of February and, you know, the sun will never rise, but not too, but a little later in the end of February, so we'll get a little bit of, like, glow, you know, and I'm, like, you know, starting to look up moon cycles and things and see, like, when the full moon would be, because you want to land it, like, right in the middle of what you think your trip will be, so you get the most light at the, you know, uh, beginning and end that you can possibly have. Right. And uh, eventually I was just like, you know what, let's, let's move it into March. Let's get you some know. sunshine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, there's uh, the winter storms kind of taper off there at that point. So, uh, you know, one of the things we did in preparation for this trip is, you know, we monitored the weather leading up to it. And just it was snowing or, you know, and sometimes severely with pretty high winds, you know, all through January and February. And I was like, oh, man, that was a good good idea just you know to wait till march and also i hope it gets a lot better in march <laughs> well so was this your first like a uh, snow backpacking arctic sort of adventure pretty much wow so what did it take to get ready for that even mentally to to learn everything that you need to know just to be safe in the cold and in the weather yeah so um 
there's um, it as a trip. There's were certainly a lot of firsts, but there were also a lot of um, parts of this that we had done before. Um, so we had done in January of the previous year, uh, 2016, we had done a snowboard mountaineering trip to Macedonia where we, you know, climbed some mountains with the snowboards on our back and then rode down, you know, but we were also starting from and returning to a hotel at the base of the mountain, you know, so we didn't have that sort of, uh, unsupported self-sustained, um, you know sort of trip for that uh so you know we did have some experience you know moving around in the backcountry and route finding and hiking you know in snow conditions with crampons and ice axes and that sort of thing um as far as the you know the winter camp uh you know i was avid camper and stuff and you know i had camped in cold conditions uh sort of unintentionally from time to time but never in deep snow type stuff so there was a lot of uh, reading and research uh, done for that, as well as we did a three-day hike on the Appalachian Trail uh, in January to prepare for it. Burr. Which we were lucky we were lucky enough to get a snow day uh, while we were up there. <laughs> Good. Well, did you have to talk AJ into this, or was she on board? Um. So there was a peer. So at you know. At first, when I first sent her, you know, the information was like, let's try this. She was like, yeah, okay, totally, you know. And then there was a period leading up where um, she needed a little bit of an extra push. And, you know, uh, we, we talked and shared some more articles and stuff. And she was like, okay, I'm on board. And then she was fully on board. And her actual hesitation gave me a little bit of hesitation you know, because she is never, she never says no to anything or questions anything. She is always like ready to go. So then she needed to come back and re-encourage me <laughs> some of my, um, you know, confidence that had been, you know, shaken a little bit from seeing her, uh, you know, show concern. That's, that's but, so cool. So what were your concerns? Yeah. What, what started to shake your confidence a little bit about the trip? Um, is sort of... Like, um, you know, it's like concerns over being in the pilot seat, really. It, it's that it, when you're in the leadership uh, role of a trip like this, um, there's a lot of unknowns. Like, you have to prepare to get yourself through it, and you have to prepare to get the other person or persons through it, and you have to know their comfort level and their ability level, which you can never really know. You know, and you want to be, you want to encourage and, you know, coach them and, you know, make sure that they're being safe, but also watch out for yourself because the, you know, the number one thing that you have to do is protect yourself because that allows you to help others. Yeah, no, I get it. Here's what kind of amazes me about this, Todd, is, you know, I've done several uh, winter backpacking and snow caving trips and things like that. It's something that my family and I and my friends and I have enjoyed for a long, long time. I remember the first time I went out and just the concerns about, you know, are we really going to be all right? Can we stay warm? Are we going to get frostbite or hypothermia or, you know, what's going to happen? It's so unknown. So I guess the point of this is over time, you kind of get a feel for what to expect and when you're in a brand new environment like that. But when you're going out and you've not really done much of it, then, man, there's so many wild cards and so many questions. So you had done some, some cold camping and you did your Appalachian Trail trip to try to get a feel for it. But then you guys were really diving in big time. So yeah. that, that's impressive in a way because I'm like, wow, that's... I mean, you, you were not inexperienced, but neither did you have years of experience, and you're headed to the Arctic, you know? Yeah, and that was, you know, part of, you know, sort of the challenge was, like, let's do something where I, you know, am not, you know, fully proficient, you know, or something that's going to push my skill level, you know, 
And, you know, we really just kind of like researched and planned for every eventuality and, you know, was like, okay, if this happens, then we have this. And if that happens, then we have this. And then you start having to make those hard choices because you can prepare for every scenario. But when you're going self-supported, unguided, every scenario you're preparing for could potentially mean more weight on your back and in your sled. You know, so as a firefighter, like, you have to you you have to have the mindset of what to do with all the contingencies. You know, have all the planning in place. What if? What if? What if? But you can go too far with it, right? Uh, so the fire department is kind of based on going too far with it because you've always got that giant red beast to you know do the heavy lifting for you. So you, you kind of throw the kitchen sink at everything and if it if it's not working you know you you break through it literally sometimes you know whereas um you know in uh you know climbing and camping and uh trekking in the backcountry you know sometimes weight is a bigger concern than that what if that has a three percent chance of occurring so what was your kit like in the end uh what did you take with you yeah, so we had a, a four-season uh, tent with, uh, you know, a rain fly as opposed to, like, a single-wall-type uh, tent with a double uh, vestibules, one on each end. Uh, we had zero-degree uh, sleeping bags with uh, additional sleeping bag liners in them that were rated for use down to, like, I think, 55 degrees. Um, we had uh, two uh, sled each. With our pack, we took an MSR Whisper Light stove, uh, the international model, so we know we would be able to get fuel in Sweden. Nine liters of fuel, 12 and a half days worth of food, uh, and with some additional, you know, like protein bars and things of that nature, just in case we ever got into a scenario where we were stuck for longer than we had planned for snowshoes, crampons, ice axes, and then all the associated gear with, uh, for alpine climbing, that sort of thing. Yeah. Twin, uh, dry ropes. Um, yeah, it's, you know, pretty much what we had. So did you drag gear in a sled or did you use a backpack only? Yeah, no. So we, we dragged, we dragged, uh, sleds. Basically we, bought uh plastic uh drag sleds off the internet in sweden they were delivered to aj's house in sweden then uh we had a half a day there in sweden when i landed to sort of build the bridle and the lashing systems on them from rope and carabiners uh and we towed those along connected to our backpacks they're probably between 75 and 100 pounds each with another 25 pounds on our back maybe Oh, did you have to break fresh trail with those things? Uh, yeah, unfortunately we did. Um, and also we had the first like four days, uh, over the first four days, and we got like something between 24 and 30 inches of snow. Oh, and, man. Yeah. And, you know, the base was probably, you know, depending on where we were in the section because, you know, it was just so much varied terrain. But, you know, anywhere from like a two foot base to probably a six foot base with, uh, you know, then we got 24 to 30 inches of snow. And because we're on snowshoes, we're a lot slower than the skiers who, who are mostly a Nordic uh, tri- style cross country skiers on the trail from what we saw. And they're you know close to twice as fast as we are. So we would get up earlier than them in the morning. And, you know, we would be the first ones breaking that trail. And, you know, there are days where it's just like, oh, God, when are the skiers going to get up? You know, because then they'd ski <laughs> past us, you know, dragging their professional sleds, you know, these very nice uh, polk sleds with, the you know, the nice canvas tarps and the, the hard poles, you know. And they would drag those in front of us and make things a little bit easier. You know, we'd have a better time floating in the snowshoes and stuff like that. So, yeah, we, there were uh, plenty of instances of having to break trail, which was like the most dreaded part <laughs> of every day. Oh, that would be really, really tough. So did the skiers ever like come to you guys at the end of the day and say, we owe you? What do you want? Because <laughs> you, you broke the first half day trail for them. No, I, I you know, um, they're kind of like surprised. They're like, oh, you, you, you're just using snowshoes? Like, 
ah, and they're like, oh, okay. Where are you staying in the huts? We're like, nah, we're just we're just staying outdoors. They're like, oh, uh, okay, <laughs> you know. And most of them are uh, Norwegian or Swedish, so like, so in terms of the accent, it sounds like they're being like very concerned or judgmental of those choices. So you're like, are we crazy? We might be crazy. <laughs> Well, I don't think you're crazy, but man, you signed up for a lot of work. I'm sure that not everything went right. So tell us about some experiences that surprised you. Oh, man. Uh, so right off the bat, day two, or yeah, which was our first full day, um, starts off with, I put my snowshoes on the wrong feet, uh, which I noticed immediately. You know, uh, I, we kind of like, you know, made camp off the trail into the woods a bit. So it's kind of like, you know, walked through some knee-high snow, got out to the trail, and then I saw that my snowshoes were on the wrong feet. And I bent down to fix them, and I split my pants. <laughs> I Great. just I went I went down too fast, and you know, like kind of catch the knee of your your catch the knee the crotch of your pants with your knee, and right. just split split them open. And I was like, great. So luckily I, I brought a backup pair of uh, pants, uh, soft shell pants. And, you know, I just stood on top of uh, AJ's sled and changed my pants there on the side of the trail. And then we, we got going. And day two was just murder for me. Uh, day one was amazing. I, I was like sprinting with my sled and I thought it was the best thing ever. And I just couldn't be stopped. And then day two was like my body was like debating on whether or not it was going to do this thing. And my hips were killing, my knees were killing, everything hurt on day two. And I was just miserable and grinding my teeth the entire time. And I broke the cardinal rule. I allowed myself to sweat. Oh, no. Yeah. I, and I knew it and I, leading up to the trip. And I was always you know, telling you, the one thing we got to do is we can't sweat. And everything we bought for this trip, everything we wore was all synthetic, synthetic, synthetic. You know, we, moisture control is number one. And I was just pissed off all day, just going full out, grinding my teeth like this is absolutely miserable and I'm sweating. And we got to where we made camp and we... Uh, you know, made camp and I got in the tent and I was just shivering and I crawled inside my sleeping bag and I was like, I'm sorry, AJ, I just got to warm up. And, you know, I went to sleep for a little while and I wake up and AJ is making the food and she took care of everything. And, you know, that was like, I was like, all right, that's stupid. I cannot sort of like have that temper tantrum fit inside my head again. Mm. You know, I've got, got to control myself. So that was the first thing that happened. Meanwhile, on day two, uh, we had also gotten off course, which we didn't know yet. So um, we brought uh, Map and Compass as our backup, you know, sort of orienteering system. And we also brought a GPS with us. And the trail was extremely well marked. Every, like, I want to say 20 meters, they had a big red X on a sign and they would add sections to the signpost to keep raising it up dependent on the snowfall. So when it would get covered, they'd stick another sign into the sign below it and, you know, very well marked. Unfortunately, all the trails are marked the exact same way. <laughs> so you have to know which trail you're on. Yeah, and we didn't, we were not prepared for that. And we kind of got lulled into this false sense of confidence where we're like, we don't need to worry about orienteering at all. These, look, this is the greatest marked trail I've ever seen in my life. You know, so we were just skipping along, following these red X's. And when we, we passed a junction point and we followed the wrong red X's, essentially. <laughs> And uh, so the second half of day two was sort of going off in the wrong direction. We were heading southwest when we should have been heading southeast, and we were, you know, approaching Norway. So day three starts amazing. Day three, body's back. My body has decided, yeah, we're going to do this thing, and everything's working, firing on all cylinders. We moved out of the forest. We're starting to see, you know, that real Arctic backdrop with the, you know, the treeless mountains and, you know, these frozen lakes and everything is just silent and pristine. And, you know, uh, we're seeing the, the Samish people, which are um, sort of the Inuit people of the Sweden, Finland, Norway region. And it was really neat. And I'm just 
going along, having a great time, pulling the sled, everything's great. And then we see that these X's start to turn sharply up like a ski slope, you know, up toward a mountain ridge. And we're like, that's, that's ridiculous. Like that shouldn't be there. Why would we go off in that direction? And so we got out the map and we started looking and we're looking at the GPS and we see that like, oh, we're, we're over to the west. Where as a matter of fact, there's, there was a ridge of mountains on our right. We're like, the top of those, we once you get over that, that's Norway. So something's not right here. We're supposed to be going more into the center of Sweden. And now we're almost in Norway. And it turned out that you know, we, we backtracked on the map and we found where we had made our mistake and we had started following the wrong trail, which we didn't know because we were allowed to get so comfortable with this great marking system that they had, which they use for every trail. <laughs> Man, on the uh, backpacking trip we did a couple years ago, we had been orienteering without a trail for a week. We got to a trail and trusted it. And the same thing happened to us. We ended up completely off where we wanted to be because there was a trail. We followed it, right? It's, yep. uh, it's crazy. But yeah, could keep going with the story, man. So how far off track did you get? So if you think about, uh, you know, like a, the two trails splitting off like a V, right? If we went straight across that V, it was 15 kilometers back to the, the, the trail we wanted, right? Okay. Or, we, or we could go back 20 kilometers north, reconnect where we were supposed to have stayed to the left, essentially, east, and then gone back 20 kilometers southeast, you know, just basically oh. reverse that V. So those were our two choices. Now, because... We, were, we went 20 kilometers southwest, all of that south movement we didn't want to lose. So we're like, all right, we'll do the 15-kilometer connector trail over to the proper trail, and, you know, we'll, we'll lose a day, but, you know, that'll be that'll be that. And we were averaging, um, you know, about 15 kilometers a day. So it was lose one day, lose two. And we're like, let's do the connector trail, even though we're staring at what is – a rather decent ski slope with those red X's going right up it and our sleds on our back. So, you know, we're like, all right, this is what we got to do. And it really kind of killed my mojo, but we started pulling the sleds up this slope, you know, to the top of uh, that mountain ridge or that ridge line there. And it was deep. Uh, It was, you know, this must have been the side of that ridge that they were that the snow was dumping on because uh, even with snowshoes, we were still going waist and knee deep for a lot of it. So we we get up to it and we get over it and we're like, all right, awesome. Now it's just we're just gonna walk through this valley for 15 kilometers and connect to the trail we want to be on. We start walking across the valley and you know we get you know, a little bit into the valley, we start spare to the left a little bit. And in the distance, I see what I think is these red X's going up another ridgeline. And I'm like, oh, great. Once we get through this valley, which you can see for kilometers, so it's kind of hard to gauge how far that distance was. I was like, but right. once we reach there, we're going to have to go up another one of these. And sure enough, we did. And we go, we get up to it and it veers sharply to the right and up a much steeper slope than the one we had just gone over. We were climbing on all fours with snowshoes and crampons on and 75 to hundred pound sled just pulling down oh. on us. And it starts to snow and I'm like, this is nuts. Uh, my crampons are not getting, or the crampons on my snowshoes, I should say, are not getting traction. I'm like, I feel like I'm losing you know, I'm, I'm going forward two and losing one on like every push. And, you know, we still have our trekking poles out cause we haven't, you know, broken out the ice axes and we're just trying to climb up with the ice, with the trekking poles and the snowshoes and the crampons. And it's getting, at least this time it's hard pack, but I can't get any purchase. So we also carried a MSR uh, snow stakes with us or uh, snow pickets. So I jammed, uh, mine into the snow and I clipped my sled to it and I put on my crampons. I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm, these snowshoes are not helping. 
uh, you know, it's too vertical and I can't even get traction with the crampons underneath them. So I throw on my crampons and uh, clip the snowshoes onto the outside of the sled and we start up again and there's two peaks to the, my right as we're facing up the slope and you just see dark blowing wind and snow coming between those two peaks. And I'm like, AJ, there's a ledge over there. I think we should go make camp. And she's like, it doesn't look flat enough. And I'm like, I think it is, <laughs> you know, from my perspective, it looked like a great opportunity. And she's like, no, I don't think so. And, you know, so we're like, all right, you know, we keep going up. We made it maybe another one of those X's or two. And the storm had started to move past those peaks and was now coming down on us. And I was like, AJ, we have to make camp now. And it was, if you can imagine like giant stair steps, we ended up on a ledge just above the first ledge that I suggested. So then there was like another ledge right on top of that. As a matter of fact, if you stood on that ledge, you could look down onto the first ledge, uh, mm. you know, and luckily, you know, she didn't want to stay there because it didn't look like it had enough snow for us to really anchor into anyway. <laughs> You know, when I was looking down on it from above, but I was like, we've got to make camp now. So we pulled our sleds up onto that ledge, which was semi-flat, and I could see that the slope um, above it was pretty close to vertical. So I knew that there wouldn't be a sufficient snow load on there to kind of like start an avalanche in the middle of the night and blow us off of there. So I felt good about that. And there was sufficient snow for us to put in our snow pickets and our snow stakes for the tent. And it just kind of turned into like, you know, this emergency situation where I just directed every movement we made and AJ just followed it to the letter and we just became a machine. And we like kind of assembled the tent flat, staked it into the ground flat and popped it up before the wind had a chance to, you know, get under it. And then I was like, all right, we're going to throw all the gear in the tent and we'll sort out what we need and put it out and, you know, snake stake down the sleds, stake down everything got into the tent and, you know, started that process of making our water and heating our food for the day. Uh, and while, it, while in this jet engine of just shakiness and the tents, you know, blowing in the wind. <laughs> Man, what a, what a crazy time. So I have to ask a couple of questions about that. That's kind of the moment of truth. You know, you guys took action and you said you kind of became a machine. And so everything worked out. I have seen people in situations like that, they they become unsure. Am I making the right choice? You know, becomes their question. And because of that, they stop doing what they need to do and just start wondering what, what should they do next. And that, that's so incredibly dangerous because you either have to get to a place where you have shelter or you have to create shelter where you are or things are going to get really bad really fast. So how scary was it? I mean, you guys did the right thing in the sense that you took action and it worked. But was it like yeah. rocking your world? Were you were you kind of wondering if it was going to work out? Yeah. So, I mean, it was definitely the most prolonged, scary situation I've ever been in. I've been in acute situations like surfing or, you know, whatever, where you're like, oh, crap, I think this is it. And, you know, and then it ends up working out, you know. But I've never been in one where you're just sitting there waiting for that axe to drop. But, you know, to your point about like doing what you should do and what you have to do, uh, we had planned in extra sort of emergency days on the back end of the trip. So we already knew that like if we had to stop halfway through a day and hunker down for blizzard or whatever, that we were fine, that we had a, we had those days built into our trip. So right. really, uh, you know, it wasn't like a we didn't have that hardship of oh we're gonna have to you know pull off the trail earlier we're not gonna be able to finish our trip if we make camp now and we didn't have to struggle with any of that because we we prepared for that in advance and um so we we made everything we ate our food and we uh you know laid down uh to go to sleep and neither one of us thought we were going to sleep, uh, but AJ hadn't slept much the night before and she went out <laughs> she was just 
out and I'm laying there in the tent all night long while the wind is shaking it back and forth and just the most sleepless, scary night of my life. And I'm like, mm. all right, I looked at that slope above us and, you know, I didn't, it looked like there was a, wasn't a snow load on it, you know, and it was, it was too vertical for avalanche conditions. Right. Right. Wasn't that what it was? And, you know, <laughs> and, and by that point it was like, you know, you peek your head out of the tent and you can't see the, you know, the, wall above you at all anymore the tents are comp- the uh, sleds are completely covered you know and you're and i'm like oh let's see you know are the we use both snow pickets is that enough hopefully these t- the sled if the sleds go sliding down the mountain we're not gonna be able to finish the trip you know so i was we had a you know a spot tracker with us and i was figuratively eyeing that emergency button the entire the entire night like just in my head like what have i done what have i done to aj what have i gotten us into and, um, yeah, uh, eventually the, the wind stopped and then the snow stopped and there was a really just peaceful, clear evening for a couple of hours and I managed to go to sleep. And when I woke up, uh, blizzard once more, <laughs> oh. I could, could not believe it. Um, you know, and we tried to wait it out and around, uh, around uh 7 30 aj went out to use the restroom and she's like you know what it seems like it's okay it's calming down you know let's try and go so we start packing up everything inside the tent so we can just load it into the sleds as it is uh and then we took down the tent and this was actually uh sort of an awesome thing that we got out of this is we took down the tent in one piece and folded it up and laid it flat on top of the sled before sealing up the sleds with their tarps. So instead of trying to roll this thing up and put it back in the bag and deploy it every day and night, we sort of stuck with keeping the tent in one piece and, you know, setting it up that way. So when we did have high wind conditions, we could stake out the tent flat and then slide the poles up underneath it and get it popped up that way. So we broke it down that way, and as we were, the storm just intensified. And what we thought we were near the summit of that ridge line, we we were not. Uh, we had a lot more vertical hiking just to get over that ridge line, and the 13 kilometers that remained were similar: over one ridge line, down the other side; up a ridge line, down the other side. Um, Mostly hard pack. We did that day all in crampons because there was so much snow and ice because it was just a blowing white out across this like Arctic tundra. So we had a lot of hard pack, a lot of ice, a lot of rocks in places because the snow was blowing so hard and so fast that it couldn't even stick uh, to the rocks and the ground in that area. And we had uh, one more massive, I call it the Crux uh, Ridge, that was even steeper than the previous two massive ridges that we had gone up to get onto this thing it was like right in the middle and we had to get up this thing and we did it one x at a time one of those 20 meter across x's we'd (laughs) climb up to those x's dragging our sleds we'd stop take a rest climb up to another x you know again dragging our sleds the whole way and eventually we made it through we made it over and down the other side, back to the King's Trail, which we didn't think we were going to make it in one day, and we did. Um, but it was definitely the hardest 15 kilometers of the trip. Oh, man, what a crazy thing. But when you look back on it, I have to ask if, was it the, the challenge of being off track, you know, or off of your main trail and having to get through the blizzard and going over all these ridges? Is that your favorite part of the trip now, or you do you wish it had not happened? Ah. Uh, I don't wish it hadn't happened, um, you know, because I think without it, it might have been a little too easy and it may not have fulfilled the adventure that I was looking for. Um, there's definitely some hard uh, trekking the first uh, two days, regardless of if we had made that mistake. But I also think it, it snapped us into shape and it was good that it happened early because, like I said, we were being, you know, sort of lulled into this false sense of comfort with the great trail markings. And we weren't even right. using our orienteering equipment at that point and hopping along. And we probably weren't taking the trip as seriously as we could have been. And that happened right in the beginning. And that sort of, you know, raised the tone for the rest of the trip. Mm, lessons learned, huh? Wow. Yeah. What an amazing trip. So 
You know, we've burned through our time, Todd, so fast, and I would like to hear so much more about the rest of the trip. Can you give us the bullet point summary of how it turned out? Uh, yeah. So um, after that day, we had one more day of sort of uh, vertical climbing up to the sort of mountain plateau where the rest of the uh, hiking was just down through a, a valley, um, much easier than the previous uh, three days, uh, or I should say four days um, on the night, the fourth or fifth night when the sky was cleared up for us to see the northern lights for the first time. And did you? We did, we did. What's that like? What do they look like? Uh, so they're kind of like, uh, if you think, like, kind of like if you think about a volleyball net, like there's some uh, vertical green pillars with like this wispy waviness of green in between them, kind of like that. You know, so it's like a bunch of like interconnected glowing green volleyball nets uh, sort of across the mountains of the sky where we were because we were camped out in an nice. Arctic bowl that evening. So nice. So was that kind of a magical moment? Yeah, uh, it really was. And, you know, and it also was like, okay, now we, we've accomplished one of our goals for this trip. So, you know, if nothing else, we, we could leave tomorrow and we've done that much, <laughs> you know, right. So that, and that was sort of my, my convincing point for AJ was like, you'll get to see the Northern Lights. So. And so it finally happened. That's cool. It happened. Well, when you were going downhill with the sleds, did you have a way, a braking system to keep them from going out on top of you? Or did you have to put them in front of you and, and allow them to try to drag you as you went? Uh, so um, if we had a prolonged downhill, we had uh, a braking system, which was a uh, uh, section of 11 millimeter sterling uh, rope that had been retired, uh, maybe a meter long with knots tied into it about every six inches. So you just clip that onto itself underneath the sled and it provides enough drag to stop the sled from running you over. But you have to stop, bend down, clip it. So if it was a small downhill or a slight angle, you, you just went faster. <laughs> just try to outrun it. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Tried to outrun it, or you put it next to you, and we call it walking the dog. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. There you go. So how did it feel when you finally finished? You got to the end of the, the trip. It was, you know, it was a little bittersweet, um, because when we got to Kebnekaise, uh, we tried to climb it, and the first day we uh, climbed sort of the wrong mountain, and... You know, uh, when we got to the summit ridge, we could see that we were not where we wanted to be. So we climbed back down and a blizzard came in and we could no longer even see the mountain anymore. So we had to go home. Then the next day. Oh. Yeah, unfortunately. And then the next day it was whiteout conditions all day long and there was no hope of making an attempt on the next day. <clears throat> um, so when we hiked, we, we weren't able to climb Kebnekaise uh, in this trip. Uh, so we got up. Uh, the third morning, very early, packed our sleds and got ready to hike out. Uh, we were expecting to, there's a bus at 11.45 and 3.45. Um, we were expecting to take the afternoon bus, but all of the trekking was downhill and it followed a snowmobile road. So we were able to make great time and we kind of <laughs> ran out of there. We covered 15 kilometers, or 17.7 oh, kilometers in uh like four and a half hours which was the most in a day for us and the fastest <laughs> so we we were kind of didn't even have time to like contemplate it as we ran for the bus and caught the bus to the train from a town called kirna um so once we kind of got on the train you know we just kind of decompressed and you know we were pretty happy with the way everything had went and how the trip had turned out uh, we you know we did the whole thing on snowshoes. We did it without the comfort of the huts that are along the way. And we did it um, sort of on our own without anyone's help. And 
we couldn't have been happier with it. And, you know, on a personal level, uh, I had become a brand ambassador for uh, Always Choose Adventure, which is sort of an adventure organization based out of Colorado that helps promote adventure in people's lives uh, just before leaving on the trip. So I was really stoked on that. And I brought their flag along for the trip. So we got some awesome pictures with that. And I'm uh, going to be ramping that up in the New York area. Uh, so all in all, uh, real success. And we you know, couldn't be happier. Nice. Well, thanks so much for sharing the story with us. It sounds like an amazing trip. And uh, now that you've done an extended trip, you know, in, in the cold, in the blizzards, would you recommend it? Do you love it? Or is it like, well, next time I might go to the jungle? <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're looking for that next one. And we've kicked around some ideas of going to Thailand climbing or back to, uh, I personally want to go back to Kalimnos, uh, which is one of my favorite places to climb in Greece. Um, but uh, we, I'd absolutely do it again. Uh, I'd absolutely recommend it. Um, to people, especially if you're thinking this is something you might want to do. I think this is a great trail for you because there is that network of uh, huts along the way. And there are, you know, some Nordic skiers and stuff passing by. So there is a level of protection you have on this kind of uh, uh, a trek. And also there's, you know, you can take the train to it. <laughs> you can't beat that, you know. So you can literally take the train to the trailhead and, you know, go out on your own. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thanks, man. I uh, I hope we can stay in touch and hear more of your stories. I think you're going to have a, a bunch more to tell over the years. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> well, it was really cool to hear your story today. One more time, tell us what the name of the route is. It's uh, the King's Trail or Kunzleggen, uh, which is the, the Swedish uh, for that. Um, and it's... Uh, Starts in Abisko, Sweden. All right, man. Well, thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Anytime. You bet. And for all the listeners out there, what an amazing story, huh? You never know what you're going to get into until you get out and try. But wow, Todd and AJ really did it. I think it's such a cool story. And until the next show, make your own story. Get out there and have some fun. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. <laughs>